0: I am the knight, I am. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right.
1: If the audio is a little off, I am recording from a luxurious uh, hotel room got two rooms is that nice i'm at the bar room where are you on strange new worlds i am caught up okay so you are ahead of where we are in the reviews because i've been fucking swamped all week and mark is probably ready to slit my throat uh if you're listening to this mark i'm sorry we haven't talked about uh, Lotus Eaters yet, but I was pleasantly surprised with this, uh, this last uh, comedy episode. I didn't hate it,
0: and Ethan Peck was fucking amazing. The comedy was mostly so character-based that it worked really well. It wasn't, look at the jokes. It was, this is a character in a particular situation, and the comedy spun out of that the only bits that were more story focused, which I still got a kick out of, was uh, Pike on hold with customer support, which was just funny because of how Anson Mount reacted to dealing with what we deal with on a regular basis and just seeing him like, wait, this doesn't happen anymore. But yeah, I was going in expecting a
1: real kind of tedious comedy of, you know manners and we didn't quite get that so that was a pleasant surprise and then lotus eaters last week i just i loved i thought it was the strongest episode to date but then this
0: one was right up there too lotus eaters fascinated me in that it felt like a classic trek script with new trek aesthetics Oh, oh, oh! Did did you read our review? I have not yet. Okay, I usually so, wait until I watch the episodes, and we watched it on Sunday, and I just haven't gotten around to reading it yet. So, do you know why it felt like a classic Trek episode?
1: Was it based on a a script? It was a recycled pitch, huh. or at least parts of a recycled pitch. So, Philip Jose Farmer. And sure. forgive me if I did, is that is that author I, ring a bell? Yes, yes. Okay, so he he pitched it originally as let's see if I can remember the title of the short story. Uh, Sketches among the ruins of my broken mind. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Uh, he pitched it to Roddenberry, and I look. I'm just learning this from reading the Memory Alpha shit. He pitched it to Roddenberry. Roddenberry says it's too. <laughs> cerebral and so he he goes off and's like fine i'll fucking write the short story about this object that enters earth's orbit and causes everybody on the planet to forget three days of memory including the you know the the day that just happened and so in his short story that proceeds on the planet for eight years and dystopia happens meanwhile i'm watching the episode and i'm thinking. God damn it, what was that short story I read 20 years ago (laughs) that's like all of this thing is in the planet orbit and it's making people forget all their memories and like it just spirals into this this horrible uh, thing. And like so I'm like, I'm trying to pay attention and then I'm trying to Google and figure out what it was. And so finally, as I'm writing the review with Mark, I'm going back and rereading the short story. So yeah, if it felt like Trek classic there is some dna there and i i love that it had to be intentional had to be oh. too
0: many coincidences there no doubt because it, it did it just had that vibe of okay you've got the planet and you could see this done on classic Trek budget at least the stuff on the planet that you couldn't have done with original Trek sets Up to and including the idea that, oh, we have a Starfleet officer who goes rogue and bends a planet to his will. How many times did that happen in classic Trek? That was an absolute trope. Yeoman Kurtz, I presume. Yeah. And you couldn't have done the the space stuff necessarily. You couldn't have had Ortegas flying the ship that way just because you didn't have the... I fly the ship. Oh, that was so good. Oh, so good. We are recording on a Tuesday to help accommodate our guests. We once again have a guest, Patreon backer, friend of the show, writer at XF, Robert Segundas. Rob, welcome back. Evening,
2: evening, fellas. Um, someday when I have a few more books, I will shell out for the rest of the Star Trek DVDs and renew my childhood love and jump into that, all that later stuff. But alas, today is not the day.
1: Hey, uh, Bobby, I'll just give him a Paramount Plus login.
0: It's fine.
2: Oh, that, that would be appreciated at some point. Because we're family
0: here. We are family. And it is family that does the worst things to you. Thank you, Will. No. <laughs> oh. Oh. Look,
1: look. I feel like I am a fucking insane person. Because and this is this is why I read White Knight in the first place. I see it being very popular on the sales charts when those were a thing that existed. I see lots of online chatter about white knight and then i'm like i read white knight and i'm like this is a flaming piece of shit and i'm like i must be crazy so it's nice to commiserate with people who can read this book and recognize it for what it is which is bad comics
0: i am gonna go into a bit of discourse here and bear with me on this okay strapped in ready ready to go one of my favorite podcasts is We Hate Movies. It's, as they call themselves, four fat New York comedians sitting and watching bad movies. Towards the beginning of most episodes, one of them says this phrase that I'm about to paraphrase. For them, it's movies. For us, it's it's okay to like a comic book. There are plenty of bad comic books that I know I like. A lot of stuff from the 90s that is empirically not very good but what one has to do when interacting with problematic or bad media is to look at it critically the thing that is the problem that i find with the murphyverse and the fans of the murphyverse is they do not look at this stuff critically they look at it as The greatest thing to ever come out and woe be unto anyone who points out anything about it that are its obvious flaws it is okay to like for instance indiana jones in the temple of doom or 16 candles as long as you can look at it critically and say the banquet scene in temple of doom or the character of Long Duck Dong, and I was very particular in picking two movies by now Oscar winner, Gihui Kwan. Woo! These are bad aspects of art that one can appreciate. If someone can read these the the Murphy stuff and admit freely, I'm reading this because I like an edgy, a quote unquote edgy take, or I like his art or I'm looking for something that just blows up superheroes as we know it without putting much thought behind what to do with it after, if you can look at it critically and admit that, that's fine. If you look at this and are like, these are the greatest comics ever made, that is where we run into trouble. I will guarantee you the Venn diagram of people who love the Murphyverse and people who thought Batman versus Superman was the best superhero movie ever, (laughs) they might not be a perfect circle, but the overlap in that Venn diagram is gigantic. But I was thinking about this on my drive home, and it was like, really, it's like, I want to make it clear, we we don't pull our punches on what we don't like, but just because we don't like it, I don't want you to be like, we think you're dumb, we think you're bad, because that is a gatekeeper fandom thing I hate. I don't like what you like, let me tell you why you're wrong and make you feel bad. That's not ever what I want to be. But I'm looking at these from a critical standpoint, and, and again, crit- by critical, I mean looking into what it is. I don't expect you, the royal you, to write a 2000 word discourse on why I'm wrong about the Murphy verse, but look at what you like and why you like it.
1: If I could just chime in for just a second, Matt made me think about something. He was talking about the Venn diagram overlap between like white knight fans and Batman versus Superman fans and I was like I think I made that point before and so I looked up my review of white Knight for WMQ (laughs) and I did I did a Venn diagram sketch and it's white Knight fans uh hashtag release the Snyder cut and the intersection is I have labeled mega assholes
2: a lot of deja vu tonight I I admire that position Matt and I kind of aspire to that in my best moments I don't often get there And I think tonight I'm probably not going to get there, but I am genuinely grateful uh, to you, Will, for putting me through this torture because (laughs) I feel like after reading, I had never read White Night Itself before in full, nor the book that we read for this evening, Um, but I read both in prep for this. And I feel like it was genuinely enlightening on a few levels about it, it, it was enlightening. It had a window into why certain comics become successful and why certain comics develop uh, followings and fandoms. Like I genuinely think I do understand why people like Sean Gordon, Mort Murphy's stuff. Some of it is troubling and some of it, and this is going to be a little bit gatekeepery, but some of it I genuinely think is that these things function as a very good first window into better things um, that all of the flaws are not going to be apparent to someone picking up this genre or this comic for the first time. And if you are, and I don't think there's anyone listening to this podcast that is both, one, a Sean Gordon Murphy fan, and two, someone that hasn't read many Batman comics, Uh, but if, if such a person is out there listening right now, I urge you to please look at the list, the ranked list, and just pick a bunch off the top 20 just to go to town. And uh, you, your life will be improved.
0: Thank you for respecting our tastes. Now that we've given you the preamble on this, tonight's episode, we have Rob, who is the Batchat religion correspondent here, because tonight we are doing three stories starring the angel of the Order of St. Dumas, Azrael. The first of those stories, as we have... More than obviously made clear is Batman Curse of the White Knight. This is Curse of the White Knight numbers one through eight with story and art by Sean Gordon Murphy, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Antworld Design, and edited by Mark Doyle and Maggie Howell. The cover dates are September of 2019 to May of 2020. In the wake of Jack Napier's fall, the Joker has begun to move his endgame into play. The Joker has learned the secrets behind Gotham's past, the dark secret that may damn the Wayne family. Can a Batman who is already at his breaking point survive the assault of Joker and the Mad Angel, Azrael? To start, Murphy is a strange edge case when it comes to problematic creator watch. Murphy has never actively associated with something like Comicsgate. However, for instance, his most recent crowdfunding campaign was on Indiegogo, which is the crowdfunding source for all of Comicsgate, and his rules of the Murphyverse contain certain Comicsgate dog whistles. So while I cannot really attach to him something like I can to Ethan Von Skyver, who's actively a proponent of Comicsgate, and Murphy has chosen to not work with certain Comicsgate creators after it was made clear that they were active scumbags. There are certain things around his work that appeal actively to the Comicsgate crowd.
1: He, I think, gives off the air of someone who wants to maintain respectability.
2: I think he's a lot smarter guy than his comics uh, because I think he has like looked in other fields and especially like looked at political commentators and seen that there is like this path you can walk where you're just the centrist, you know, asking questions and you make a lot of money off of people on one side who would benefit a lot from being able to point to you and go, but that guy's not radical. He's in the middle and he's producing stuff that we like. So surely we're the reasonable ones. Glenn Greenwald a few years ago before he really
0: went off the deep end, that sort of thing. I've never heard it described that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Both great comics and terrible comics, it is very difficult to decide where to start. Because there is just so much to go at here. Well, if if I could
1: lend a hand, a suggestion. If this is going to be an Azrael episode, let's start with his depiction here. Which is a generic-ass... Rambo-ass, Iron Eagle-assed, 80s action story
0: hero. As comic book fans, alternate universes are sort of part of our DNA. It's something we accept. The thing about the Murphy-verse that I find so utterly frustrating when it comes to it as an alternate universe or an Elseworlds is that it feels like murphy wants to have his cake and eat it too it's just enough outside of what we get out of the mainstream dc universe that he's able to do whatever the fuck he wants with these characters but close enough that some of the characters are right out of the dc universe and some are so vastly different that it leaves you in this place where there's almost cognitive dissonance Batman, Nightwing, Batgirl, Gordon, Joker, until you get to the Jack Napier stuff, are all pretty much right out of the DC universe.
1: And he's constantly making references like, oh, you remember that?
0: You you remember when Babs was paralyzed? (laughs) You remember that? I remember that. And it seems like this exists Somewhat in continuity with Batman the Animated series, as there are references to specific moments and points from Batman the Animated series, but also things that aren't.
2: 89-2.
0: 89-2, absolutely. Good God, this book drips in fan service. This stuff is just fan service bit after fan service bit. And the thing about it is, it's fan service that doesn't benefit the story. It's just there so people can be like, hey, you see that? You see that thing? Fan service is fine, but it works best when it is serving what the creator is trying to say. And none of this does. This is just there to be, oh, you see that cool moment? Oh, we're going to bring in Bane for three pages so we can have Azrael fight Bane and completely waste the character.
2: Uh, the, the way that this comic is so long and yet um, everything has to be compressed extremely for anything to move forward at all, Infuriates me. Um, But to to riff on your point about fan service and about Elseworlds, I have a similar frustration, and I think that a good Elseworld either um, comments on the original by being drastically different in some way, or distills the original. You know, I I think that else worlds that are somewhat close can be really good. Like, I think one of the best Spider-Man stories are those opening arcs of Ultimate Spider-Man. And it goes back to the material, and instead of making drastic changes, it tries to refine things. I think that's great. The thing that really frustrates me about Murphy most is that in each of these stories that I've read, he has so many kernels of an idea that could be interesting, either commenting on or distilling the original in some way, and then he makes them boring instead. And Azrael is a perfect example. Because, like you say, ultimately, Curse the Night White is largely about this guy who uh, has a... He's a soldier man back from somewhere overseas where he killed a lot of people. And he did it ironically sometimes. And he's dying of cancer. And he has religious delusions. And he's going to be better than Batman for some reason, because he's secretly a plot twist by the end. The actual Wayne and Bruce Wayne is not a Wayne. There are so many things in there that could be good. For example, Asriel, to me, as a character, is originally a guy who was brainwashed by a cult, and then aspired to be something better, failed, gave into his worst impulses instead of giving into his better impulses, And then after that, slowly and progressively over the years, refined, stepping away from that cult to discover who he really was, what he actually valued from that original source, and um, how he really could live up to the Batman without trying to consume that for himself. And so having a guy who was a soldier instead of in a cult, that could be really interesting. There's all kinds of similarities between the way armed forces uh, work at their worst and cults work. There is so much to the idea of him being connected to the Waynes in some way, given that his most famous story is about trying to replace Batman. I think there's so much interesting stuff you could do with him, and it's not there. None of it is there. He's just a guy who beats people up and kills people and then makes a fancy Batman suit and then loses. And that's it.
1: But he's got special services uh, friends who can get sexually assaulted and then um, rip throats out.
0: Oh, that one line, doing the, the throwaway line about trigger warning, leap forward five seconds, was captured and raped for a month before Azrael saved her. Why is that line there? You could just say was captured. You did not need that gratuitous line. But Murphy loves to throw in lines like that every now and then to prove how edgy he is. There's a line in the interrogation scene where Harley is interrogating Joker. Looks like twins, but one of them's got to be Jax. Hey, Bats, you got a coat hanger in that utility belt? Oh, oh,
1: and if that wasn't enough, he literally says, oh, I'm going to have to abort Jax.
0: One way or the other, oh, it's just, these lines serve no purpose other than, look at how cool and edgy I can be.
2: And look is the key, is the key word there, because it's never actually edgy. It's only signifying the vibe of edginess, because both of these stories in his universe that I've read are largely about taking some bit of Twitter discourse about Batman and then going, maybe it's a little true. And taking a few politics things and sprinkling them in really lightly and going, huh, people talk about this concept. Are we going to examine it in a way that might be troubling to the average reader? No, we're just going to mention the thing. So it feels like as you read it, it feels like you're reading something forbidden. Ooh, he said a thing that I've heard my friends say before and teacher got mad at them when they made that kind of joke. So I know this must be really out there. And then the ultimate goal by the end of each story is to arrive at a status quo that feels radical, not actually is, but feels radical, and feels radical not for our world, but for children's superhero comics, and doesn't quite get there. And so, yeah, I think if I have to peg three crimes of Sean Gordon Murphy, it's number one, his weird... At once, ultra-compressed and ultra-decompressed comics where word bubbles cover his art all the time and people say nothing. Number two, it is taking things that could be interesting and making them boring. And number three, signifying edginess without actually risking anything sincerely that would be troubling to the status quo.
1: Robert Secundus just ethered the man.
0: I'm going to trigger you, Will, because I'm going to use the word that is going to make you... Rant, and I'm okay with that because that's what we're doing here. Mm. Murphy's favorite thing in both of these books, but especially in this one, even oh, more no. than the first. Oh no. Is his buzzwording of the elites. Oh god. god. That was a
1: thing that I have noticed in my reading of his work, because I have read A lot of this, you know, Murphyverse stuff, in addition to Punk Rock Jesus, he likes to take these concepts and he likes to distill them down to just a label. And so in the first book, it's all about like the rich and the powerful profiting off of Batman's destruction, the Batman disaster fund or whatever He leaves all of those economic themes behind in the first book, but he carries over the label to the second, and he just expects you to just kind of like remember that. So we have constant mention of the elites. So it's not just Batman talking about the elites, but it's Gordon who's running for mayor talking about the elites. It's uh, Joker talking about the elites. It is definitely not this Amanda Waller character named Ruth (laughs) who's working for the elites. And it just makes makes the dialogue feel weird and stilted, and it drags every scene to a crushing halt And it just makes you, you know, grit your teeth a little bit.
0: I would call the elites a straw man if we ever actually encountered the elites. But we have Ruth, who is their proxy. We find out that we have a laptop with the name of all of the elites. But we never actually deal with the elites. We find out that a bunch of their money has been passing through and laundered through Wayne, but we never find out how that's working. When I first read that, I'm like, oh, well, I guess Lucius Fox doesn't exist in this universe. Then I saw Lucius Fox and I'm like, huh, well, I guess he hasn't completely erased another character of color. Although Lucius is suspiciously not terribly dark skinned in this version. But I guess that means he's crooked. And then you get to the end and it's like, oh, the, the distribution of the Wayne fortune is being handled by Lucius Fox. Oh, so Lucius isn't corrupt. He's just vastly incompetent for not realizing that Wayne has been laundering money for the elites. And every time I say that, by the way, listener, I am using scare quotes uh, no. that, he, that this has been happening for decades. You couldn't have various figures in Gotham turn out to be the elites. You couldn't have a scene of Montoya and Bullock raiding the rich's compounds and dragging them into the streets. If I had not already read the third volume, Beyond the White Knight, there was the possibility here of Derek Powers The corrupt billionaire who takes over Wayne after Wayne is shut down in the Batman Beyond timeline and who shows up there having been the guy behind all this, which is why you wouldn't have the elites go down because, oh, you're waiting for the third volume to pay off the fact that he's been doing this. But guess what? The elites don't even come up in Beyond the White Knight. That is completely forgotten when you have a character that could have been the elites.
2: This is one of those places where I think the different sins of Sean Gordon Murphy kind of crash into each other and cause each other. Because I think um, the idea of Batman having to face people who are so rich and powerful that the the moral crimes they commit are not actually illegal, right? They are more powerful than anyone. They're richer than Bruce Wayne. That this massive problem that he doesn't know how to deal with, that he can't just like throw his money at or punch and... Um, that is actively profiting off of Batman, I think that could be interesting in the same way that the Court of Owls theoretically could be interesting, but often isn't. But I think Sean Gordon Murphy can't actually go into detail about the elites or have them show up because that, like, edgy signifier could mean ah, yes, I am criticizing the 1% and think that they should be taxed more effectively because they exert too much influence on perpetuating suffering in society. Or... It could mean, ah, that shadowy cabal of Illuminati making people too gay. When you just leave it at the elite, then you can read into it whatever politics you kind of want. And if you actually have them be real human beings with characters and motivations and relevance to the plot, then that gets too specific. And you would actually need to make some real choices that would nail things down in a way that Sean Gordon, Mur- Gordon Murphy doesn't want to do.
0: Indeed. When you read this book, looking for his actual politics, there are moments where it crystallizes. And I say that as someone who is admittedly on the lefter side of liberal to begin with. But there are moments where when Montoya is made commissioner, her first reaction to Jim is, I'm not some kind of, quote, bullshit affirmative action hire. Or at the end, when the Wayne fortune is being distributed, initially Bruce is like, you know, I want the money to go to the poor, to the advantage, to this and that. But conveniently, a lot of the money winds up going to the police for better equipment. It's very clear where Murphy's politics actually lie he is fairly careful to not make them loud but they are textual this isn't subtext this is text but it's not chuck dixon text you'd
1: think that uh sean gordon murphy and nick
0: spencer would be good friends
2: very similar vibe to a lot of their comics um very similar
0: I look at my notes, and I like I've hit, I think I've hit most of my all-caps rant notes at this point. Let's talk about the body count
1: really quick.
0: Okay, we can go there. Um,
1: because you know, we talk all the time about deaths in comics, and deaths
0: mean even less in an else world. But Murphy, think... one of Murphy's rules for his universe is once a character is dead, they stay dead except apparently the Joker who conveniently has an AI version of himself and beyond the White Knight because uh, can't right, uh, not have Joker or Jack it's it's an AI version of Jack but
1: these these characters have meaning and so if you kill them, there should be some meaning to it, not just oh look, I killed them in a panel so. He doesn't get nearly enough out of Gordon dying, but he gets he gets something, something. But basically, Azrael kills the almost the entire rogues gallery, from what I can tell. Uh, I remember quite prominently Two-Face getting sliced in half.
0: Um, But uh, Zaz, Roxy Rocket, which was an odd choice because I was like, wait. Is that Ivy? No, because Ivy's alive in the next one. I had to look it up. I was like, "Roxy Rocket, ventriloquist, and Scarface both go in that sequence." Yeah. Why
1: do it aside from I can have a body count and look at the look at me? These
0: characters mean nothing to me. It's just it's so pointless and weird. And that actually feeds into what I was milling over and trying to get out at the end of this story. Batman is. Absolutely confident that he will kill Azrael. He is going into this battle, guns a blazing, ready to kill. Is there a story where Batman finally reaches that breaking point and chooses to take a life? Yes. Is that at all treated with the gravity that a man who has sworn to never take a life, no matter what? changing his mind is is that given any of that here no it's just okay time to kill azrael
2: oh you didn't feel a lot of weight when it was like oh man bruce wayne might actually kill someone because his great 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 grandfather had a different last name than he thought maybe and was a different kind of criminal than he had previously suspected him of being
1: oh see that's why i originally picked this story as possibly being worse than uh the first book because it's got all of this ancient history that i don't give two fucking shits about i don't care i don't think that anybody else cares and when you have one of your characters in the book say why the fuck would anybody care about this ding 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 you are certainly detective of the day bullet gold star for you for pointing out what we're
0: all feeling I have a thing I've realized when it comes to these books that I also will find one little detail that just bugs the piss out of me. I specifically remember in in Beyond the White Knight, it is when Terry McGinnis literally punches the jaw off of Blight and Blight continues to speak. Not telepathic. This is not like Chamber of the X-Men. He continues to speak despite having no lower jaw. Here, it's... Okay, Azrael kills Ruth, the proxy of the elites and sets her penthouse on fire. We see it three quarters of the way burned to the ground but you know what survives? Perfectly intact. Her laptop. Oh, Even if somehow... The fire didn't claim the laptop. Even if somehow all of the water used to put out the fire did not get into the laptop and destroy it. I work in IT. You leave a laptop out in your car on a hot day and it's probably not going to work right. If you were in a left that laptop in a friggin' building that burned like that, There is no goddamn way that laptop is going to ever work again. It is just a contrivance to forward the plot. And the thing about it that is especially frustrating is that there are better ways you could do it that don't require that. She could have had a a fireproof safe with all of these documents because why would you want to store that on an internet-enabled computer? Logically, you would have hard copies, a ledger, Locked in a fireproof safe that Duke could have busted open and they could have found the evidence. But no, it's just easier to have the laptop.
2: I think she even says at one point, she doesn't even know everyone who hires her, that that's how important it is to keep this a secret. That um it's all oh, this huge and then nope, never mind.
0: Never mind. I'm trying to remember as I think I've repressed much of White Knight, which is for the good. Selena doesn't show up in any of these stories, does she? And Rob, you just read it. So, yeah, it occurred to no, me no. as I'm reading this where's Catwoman? It's befuddling. He crams every other character he possibly can into these books. And believe me, I'm kind of glad he doesn't use Catwoman because it would, I feel like it would be a Frank Miller esque take on Catwoman. You can tell what the
1: man's like one true ship is. Like, he's. He loves his Harley. And I imagine he feels that Selena would just be a distraction to that relationship.
2: I was about to say, if she showed up, then there might be like a romantic triangle. There might be like tension in the plot about where things are going. There might be, you know, some real possibilities there for actual drama instead of just Harley showing up repeatedly and going, hey, uh, I'm Harley Quinn, not the one that is played by Margot Robbie, but the good one from Cartoons
1: and, the one that's totally straight.
2: Yes. The the straight one from Cartoons who is not funny anymore and is actually uh smarter than anyone. And I'm really here just to say the things that Sean Gordon Murphy is thinking and talk about how I want to have a uh proper traditional marriage with the Batman. Yeah, it's a mess.
0: I'm so straight, I'm pregnant. I'm that straight. <laughs> And Batman will deliver the babies. My one final point, because we, we've already gone through like a half an episode on this one story. We've got two stories that actually have merit to discuss after this. What a friggin' waste of Jason blood. God. What a oh. waste of Jason blood. And especially because the it felt like the whole reason to use Jason Blood was so you could have Azrael as he's dying say an angel save my ancestor and put him in the hands of some hurt her in the hands of someone else but oh guess what it's really the demon the <laughs> only reason to use Jason Blood was a setup for that quote unquote well actually that is ironic it is using expectations and reversing them. But that particular not funny irony, the only reason to use Jason Blood was that. And well,
1: let's, let's talk about the last page because this shows the, the intelligence of the man we're working with here. I don't like to read into, like, creators and, you know, what they think and how smart they might be, but uh, I read these books and I, I really think that he is a dumb piece of shit because, because, because... The final page, this reveal of Jason Todd as long lost, you know, whatever. He actually says in the back matter in one of these books, Oh, Jason appears because I forgot
0: and thought he was the first Robin. What? I thought Jason Todd was the first Robin. And so... (laughs) I wish this was a video. Oh, Rob, I love that face. It's beautiful. I am mystified. Summer child, (laughs) how anyone could who's ever read Batman could assume that Jason Todd was the first Robin. And as I said, I think in one of our print reviews of this, or possibly in White Knight, Batman can take Tim Drake as a third Robin. Because he got it right with Dick. Yes, Jason was a mistake. Jason died. But he can see Dick Grayson and be like, this can work. If the first Robin is Jason, if the first Robin gets off the handle and is murdered by the Joker, then choosing to take a second partner like that means you're every terrible thing that the worst internet hot takes about Batman are. <laughs> Ultimately
2: that factoid confirms my suspicion that Sean Gordon Murphy doesn't actually like Batman since most of the books seem to be about takes about like it's taking why Batman is bad thought takes and then shoving them into about okay maybe here's some reasons why he's still cool even though he's bad
0: but yeah yeah I don't I don't get any of it I don't it's why Joker is the hero of White Knight like Jack Is the hero of White Knight. Well, Jack is. And Jack and Harley are the heroes of Curse of the White Knight. Why, even when you get to the end of Beyond the White Knight, Bruce comes out better at the end of Beyond the White Knight than he does in any of the others. But you still have Terry McGinnis there to be the new Batman. And you shuffle Bruce off to help form the Murphy vs. Justice League, which. Oh, boy. You don't have to read it, But at the end, you get FBI agent Diana Prince and Jon Stewart, who need his help because of this alien out in Kansas. No. Oh, yeah. The next full-on volume by Murphy is White Knight, World's Finest. That's literally the title.
2: We're going to come full circle to where we started with uh, a Batman versus Superman.
0: All mm-hmm. right. Boo. Okay,
1: I think that's it. Uh, That means it's time for White Knight 2
0: on the big board. We are at 288 stories on the big board. We are closing in on the big 300. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at fifty. Is Batman, The Man Who Laughs, the retelling of Joker's first appearance by Ed Baker and Doug Monkey?
1: Coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman, Birth of the Demon. At 100 is
0: Half an Evil. Remember, Harvey? Smash and grab. At 150 is Batman 89, Shadows. 200? 200? Is Scoop of the Century the first appearance of Vicky Vale and the Mad Hatter? Two fifty is Your Face Is Your Fortune, a Golden Age Catwoman story, and the bottom two eighty eight is the original White Knight. no
1: starting to get sweaty there. Two eighty eight.
0: <sighs> All right. Is this worse than the original? I, I'm
2: just a consultant, but I I have a take. That may be helpful which is that the original at least is clean it is stupid but you kind of know what it's doing and it has a direction and an aim and whenever this one has a direction and aim it's only repeating stuff from the first like giving the police batmobiles again this one is messier and all over the place more, with a lot more stuff about the mystery of how a piece of land could have water in one century, but not water in another century, bogging it all down.
0: Oh, fuck. How does that work, man? And we did not, for this, have to read the one-shot about Mr. Freeze Nazi son, which I am... I did. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's... oh. I mean, if we included that, there would be in this ranking here, there would be no doubt that this would be the bottom.
2: The The text in the trade paperback, because I read the trade paperback, did not buy it. I'll leave uh, the listener to imagine how I read the trade paperback. <laughs> um, uh, that His note is that it was that was supposed to be part of the original, wow. that he wanted to have an issue of Nazi Mr. Freeze in the original and it didn't quite make the cut and so it ended up actually being made and collected with the second so i I think that's actually in the defense of curse nazi mr freeze is more the sin of the father than the son here
1: and and again like sean read a thing on operation paperclip and he thought it was pretty cool so he wanted to talk about it wasn't that book done in conjunction with somebody else like he either klaus johnson so it's yeah. the best looking thing <laughs> from any of these. I think the the, the biggest damnation of the Murphy verse, and we can focus on where to put this book as, as soon as I get this point out. Whenever he has a co-writer or another writer, or whenever he has another artist, the end product is invariably better.
0: One momentary tangent. And and speaking of on problematic creator watch here, it's it's sort of funny. Last night I recorded an episode of the Patreon bonus, our son Pete for WMQ over with Dan Grote, where we're talking about Warren Ellis. Oh boy, problematic creator. But Ellis does something similar where Ellis loves to like go down Google rabbit holes and then pull in all these weird facts into his comics. But Ellis is a better writer. Yeah. Probably a more despicable human being. I only say probably because I can't 100% be sure how despicable Murphy is. Ellis is most assuredly a despicable human being. But he at least finds a way to pepper in these weird things and at least make them amusing. Versus here where they just are plodding. This book does plod. Which is something we used in the... As a description of a bunch of the stories in the episode that I'm editing right now, but we've had some of those lately, and this one most assuredly does plod. Is there any argument that this is not either 288 or 289? Is it worse than Mad? It is one of the bottom three. It is either, it is gonna either be 287, 288, or 289. Mad is probably more offensive, it is more actively offensive. It is also quite a bit shorter. That is six 20-page comics. This is eight 20-plus-page comics. Matt is supremely dumb, and so is this. Yeah, and
1: we haven't talked a lot about the art here, but the art is not remarkable. He has one facial expression. All the characters scream all the time. There is literally no selling point for this book. There is nothing I could say that, oh, it's got this strong suit or like, you know, some of the writing is a bit clunky, but man, some of those spa- splash pages are great. There is nothing that this book does well. I, I, I would say there's nothing it even does competently.
2: He does. He designs a cool car. One
1: time. I come back to Azriel if this is our ep- focus for this episode. This version of Azrael is so dumb, right? As this just this combination of different action movie tropes and this dumb dying of cancer thing. And as Rob made the the excellent point, you could have done something interesting and he just becomes some Rambo parody. It's bad. At least, and again, as Rob said, the first book, It does less damage, it is more focused, and it kind of has an interesting thought that's just driven into the ground in this one.
0: It removes the essence of Azrael. The struggle is the essence of that character. Even at his maddest during Night Quest and Night's End, he's seeing these spirit's of St. Dumas and his father, and he's wrestling with them. This guy does not wrestle with anything. This guy embraces his basest instinct. And again, if you're going to do a different version of a character like that, you have to interrogate why this version is different and what makes it interesting to make a different version of Azrael. And here does not Investigate that at all. This is the worst. This is the bottom because, at least, the version, the Jack Joker of White Knight, while I have, there are myriad problems with it, there is at least some thought there as to why he is the way he is, why he's struggling with these differences. But here it's just like, and there's Azrael who's got a flaming sword and is killing people right out of the gate so yes curse of the white knight is the new bottom of the barrel
1: congratulations sean i feel so privileged to do it
2: (laughs) so privileged to be here and thank you both because you have now uh, provided me on this podcast both my favorite comic of all time ostrander mandrake uh specter and my least favorite comic of all time, Curse of the White Knight. So you have defined both poles of my
1: reading existence. Oh. Uh, we contain <laughs> multitudes, Bobby.
0: After that particularly long opening to tonight's episode, our next story is Fallen Angel. This is Azrael, volume one, numbers one to seven. The writer is Denny O'Neill with pencils by Barry Kitson, inks by James Pasco. Colors by Demetrius Basukas, letters by Ken Bruzenak and Digital Hellfire, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim. The cover dates are February to August of 1995. Broken and defeated after his confrontation with Batman, Jean-Paul Valley wanders the streets of Gotham. But his time as Azrael is not over, as Batman gives him the knowledge and means to find out the truth about his birth and the Order of Saint Dumas. This is the opening arc of Denny O'Neill's Azrael. And arc is a little tricky on this because O'Neill wrote this book for 100 issues. And it is very much in the Clermontian. this is a continuing story for 100 issues. It follows Jean-Paul's arc throughout that entire time. But this does end the fallen angel storyline which immediately goes into another thing there this book as a series more has acts than it does arcs that one through 27 i believe is act one because that 25 through 27 i believe is the fall of the order of saint dumas and then you have this sort of angel at large then you have the agent of the bat period and then you kind of reach the fall of azrael at the end like you can really divide the series into four acts versus arcs listen this was a long set of reading to begin (laughs) with doing 27 issues to get the entire first act of this book would have been pushing it in the future no more than 15 books in a week That, that that is my new limit Maybe that we can stretch that a little here or there, but I have two podcasts. I have two podcasts to read for every week. I had to squeeze in another seven issues for WMQ and one for our son Pete. This was a lot of reading. I didn't crack last week's books because all I was doing was reading for the podcasts. And
1: and you know they should probably be good if we're going to pile them on. Uh, I will say this: this is all contained very nicely in a trade. The these seven
0: issues showcase ninety four, and what was that first story that we've already read and I've already Batman forgotten? Sort of Azrael. The difference is that one has Batman before it, and the other one is just sort of Azrael. But that was yes, the original, for the first appearance of Azrael with the Casada art. And, and all by Denny eleven and of those
1: read very nicely together. It's a good trade, and I I did extra reading this week, so I I went back and reread that. Uh, to me, the the visuals here are great. The ending is such quintessential mid nineties bizarre wacky comics. Some of the stuff with the homeless and the alcoholism is kind of problematic. Uh, but this this
0: is a fun read. O'Neill was an alcoholic. O'Neill was a recovering alcoholic because for those out there who have do not have alcoholics in their family or have the experience, most alcoholics never say they are cured. An alcoholic, once they have stopped drinking, is eternally a recovering alcoholic. And O'Neill spent much of his life from, I believe, somewhere in the 80s until he passed in the 20s, 20, 20, maybe the 90s, as a recovering alcoholic. So I think Dr. Brian Bryan is him wrestling with that a little and putting the worst of his experiences into comics. Not an excuse, but at least a reason for that somewhat harsh portrayal of alcoholism.
1: I don't even mind it so much as being harsh as just being so unrealistic, right? I can buy a man who thinks he's an angel and carries a flaming sword in a comic. That doesn't take me out of the comic. But where we have a guy who is constantly, can I get a drink? Can I get a drink? Can I get a drink? Can I have a drink? Do you have any drinks on like, uh, you? Like,
0: that was obnoxious. For a bottle of Rotgut today. This is a series, especially this first act. Kitson is on the book, the end of the fall of the Order of St. Dumas, then like the next two issues, which were Angel and Arkham, because there's a, a two issue right after that where Jean-Paul winds up having to go into Arkham Asylum for I can't remember what particular reason, but he faces all the rogues. Those are my favorite issues because Kitson is great. Roger Robinson does the next, the middle third. And then Sergio Carriello does the back. And I'm less of, he's not a bad artist, but he's a very land artist. He did that arrow in the bat, the other Denny O'Neill thing from Legends that is just sort of there. Mm-hmm. After Kitson and Robinson, it, it was a step down in the art, the art quality on this book.
2: What I experienced reading it, it was weird reading it because I was reading it alongside Curse of the White Knight on the one hand and Berserk on the other, which are both very talky, books right Mm -hmm. um it was just like a such strong contrast between um this book that is continuously horribly composed in like its layouts and in its speech bubbles to make sure that words are overwhelming you at all times versus something like berserk where a conversation between nobles is depicted with such elegance and grace and flow and oftentimes like beauty as gripping as an action scene and in the middle we have i mean i'm not as familiar with this artist with this artist's work, but it felt to me like a kind of quintessential 90s character of art, where it is trying to be ornate in its layouts at times, not to the point that it overwhelms you, but just enough to make the page a little more interesting, just to make you follow the scene a little bit more and to spread out the conversations so that as you um, follow all this exposition, It doesn't feel overwhelming. It feels like you want to keep going because the art isn't like something interrupting the text. It's something that actually is providing the mood for the text in a way that I think is oftentimes lost today, possibly because of the pacing and structure of our comics today, possibly because of changing art styles. But I I really, really loved the art and the way that these issues just
0: flowed. I don't know what Kitson has done very recently. But I mean, he worked steadily through the the 90s. He did this. He did 12-issue JLA year one with Mark Wade. He did some Legion of Superheroes. He and Denny did a Batman Punisher with Asbat's Punisher. One of the first huh. Marvel DC crossovers of this period. I have a sketch in my Batman sketchbook that is Azrael by Kitson and Azrael bust it's one of my favorites it's stunning he did a big run on adventures of Superman I mean I'm I'm seeing work as recent as the mid as 2017 and he's as I said he's still doing the con circuits within the past few years so he's he, he has a solid strong body of work and it is very much of this period. Yeah, he did Azrael's 1 to 19, 21 to 28, and the first two annuals. Oh, son we got, I forgot. He did that uh, crazy, uh, the Batgirl special that we covered a ways back. The one that felt like, oh, this was supposed to be a Batgirl miniseries that we instead crammed into one one-shot, didn't explain much of the weird details. That was earlier in his career. But I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Look at, looking at his, his Batman. Oh, right, and Shadow of the Bat. He did uh, a couple of arcs of Shadow of the Bat too. A lot of lot of Batman, and yeah, a lot of DC. Like he's got some a, a fair amount of Marvel, some Spider Man, some Doctor Strange, some FF, a uh, little bit of Avengers. But when it comes to America, he's he's a Brit, uh, and his the majority of his work is DC. A lot of work with Mark Wade. He did some uh, creator own stuff with Wade too. You can look at this book and be like, yeah, this is a 90s book. Reading this, and of course, I read this, the the Matt Mantra, I read this when it first came out. So I was reading this when I was 13-ish. Denny O'Neill reads a lot differently when you're an adult than when you're 13. You're not picking up a lot of the more subtle stuff he's putting down. And I find it somewhat... Hilarious that there's an undercurrent in here. I mean, it's very clear when it comes to Jean Paul and the system, but we see more of it about the external and clothes and how they represent the inner person and the obsession with clothes. I mean, the first line of this book is give me your shoes. And you have the guy who's mugging people for his shoes. You have when Jean-Paul and Brian are about to be shot by the Orders hit squad. The one guy, take off the coat. I don't want bullet holes in it. And Sister Lily and her reaction to wearing clothes that aren't, her monastic garb for the first time and all the stuff about the system and how the costume is part of what makes him Azrael. That is something that is woven throughout this book. And I know I did not pick up anything like that when I was 13 years old reading this and being like, boy, it's cool that, you know, this globetrotting adventure, which is still cool to this day, but there's a lot more here than just that.
2: I think because it's a 90s DC book, and I haven't read too many, mostly ones that I've talked about on this podcast. And again, I thank you both because I think it is maybe my favorite kind of comic now is a 90s DC comic that ran for 50 to 100 issues. I think we have that kind of space. You're able to be delicate and subtle um, so that you actually do include complex themes that uh, more mature readers can pick up on instead of just like announcing your one theme and then shoving it in the face all the time. You, you have the space to draw these little strands of characters and show in each character just this one subtle thing that you, you might play with more as you go forward in the next hundred issues. Which, on the one hand, makes the story, I think, less satisfying on its own, but reading it, I can tell, like, I am going to enjoy the next 93 issues of this comic. There are going to be ups and downs, but it has set up something really interesting.
0: One thing that still to this day makes me scratch my head, but a little less so having read some more of things Denny had to say about the genesis of this book. When you read the original Batman Sword of Azrael, the Order of Saint Dumas is just this handful of rich assholes who have inherited this money through the centuries. There isn't this Baroque organization that we see here. Denny didn't plan to do this series. Denny didn't think that out of Night's End, they would want to do an Azrael series. But while most people didn't like Azrael as Batman, which is what they intended, Denny thought there was something that could be done with this character. So I feel like this version of the Order of Saint-Dumas that we see here... Wasn't necessarily what he intended when he created them in Sort of Azrael. So it is a little bit of a retcon, but it makes for an a more interesting foil than, oh hey, it's just a bunch of rich guys, because it is this cult. There is this insane devotion. And it lets Denny play with some really weird and wild religious stuff. Rob, you said with the golden head.
2: Oh, yes. So I was stunned to see the golden head in this because this is a real medieval legend. I think oftentimes it's a bronze head, but there's this great uh, academic text. I forget the author's name. I apologize. But the title is Medieval Robots. If you look for medieval robots and specifically look for like scholarly press books, um, you will find this academic study of these legends legends and folk folktales from the Middle Ages, that are effectively about what we would describe as robots today, different kinds of automatons. And one of the most interesting ones was the story of the brazen head or the golden head, which uh, supposedly was owned by Albertus Magnus. You don't hear his name too much today, but he is one of the big time saints of the Catholic Church. At his time was a huge philosopher, really important thinker. And he was said to have this head, which was designed so that it had delicate mechanisms on the interior that would be moved just by the motion of the stars. And that complex mechanism could do things like calculate immense sums. It could perform all kinds of actions. You could ask it questions and it would try to work out the answers given on the data you had given it. And, one day, a young monk walked into Albertus Magnus's, uh cell to clean it up because he had just been brought in and was assigned, okay, you're on cleaning duty, and the golden head started talking to him. And the monk said, oh no, it's a demon, and smashed it to pieces. And Albertus Magnus came in and was like, why did you kill my computer, man? And the young monk was like, it was a demon. It talked to me. Burst Magnus was like, no, it was a complex machine that I used to advance my knowledge. The young monk was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I I help you rebuild it? And then Bertus Magnus was like, I'm sorry, this thing, um, because of the alignment of the stars and whatever, we can't build something like that for another thousand years or so. And the young monk was Thomas Aquinas, who more listeners probably know if you are all familiar with Catholicism, because he is the guy who has shaped Catholic theology and thought more than anyone else. So um, it's this weird folk story where if it was true, a medieval guy made a computer and then the most important Catholic theologian set history back a thousand years by destroying it accidentally. (laughs) But if it's not true, it's still a fun story about two of the smart guys from that era one of them radically misunderstanding the other. And it, it's a weird pull. In this book, Saint Dumas is the speaking brazen head. So clearly Danny O'Neill had stumbled upon some like old medieval folk stories and things which uh aren't it's not radically obscure, but clearly he's a guy who did some reading and found some interesting stuff.
0: I think you you very well described Danny O'Neill right there. When you look at his books, his his fascination with zen shows up in the question the fact that he was one of the the fathers of social consciousness in mainstream comics with green arrow green lantern he was a thinker and it it always comes through i think one of his more interesting characters is here in this book with sister lily who is an absolutely fascinating character and a character who again grows and changes over the course of this series. She comes and goes, but she's probably in more of the 100 issues than she's not. I mean, there's a whole period during No Man's Land where everybody's out of the picture because Jean-Paul is in the No Man's Land, but nonetheless. What I find fascinating with Lily is it would have been so easy to write her as the non-believer in the church who's just scheming for power. But no, she's as much of a true believer as Brother Rollo, the head of the order. She just believes he's wrong. And so it makes her a much more nuanced character, and it does not make her fall into a dragon lady stereotype, which it would have been very, very easy to make her into this traditional, quote-unquote, scheming female. And she's very much not. There's much more nuance to her character.
2: And she feels like that at first too, where she she showed up and it's just like this nun in shadows. And she's like, I want you to murder the guy in charge. You're going to follow my machinations. And then as they escape, she stops and goes, I'm scared. I've never been outside the walls of this place. And it's not necessarily a change in that moment so much as it just is like, this woman is both things at once. And people can be both things at once. They can be powerful and thoughtful and like scheming in some way and also vulnerable and frightened and, um, you know, at once learned and scared, all these different things. Um, Yeah, she fascinates me. She's one of the big reasons why I want to continue reading this series.
0: And setting her against Talia, for those who haven't read it, we get a couple issues with Rachel Gould and Talia. Talia, who is supreme confidence in herself even though we're still sort of in the period where she is very much under race's thumb she is still competent and confident and knows who she is and lily who we literally see her on panel see herself in a mirror for the first time It's a very interesting contrast, even though they don't share a ton of page space. Just those two characters make for a really interesting contrast. I
1: also like the use of race here. And it's not exactly the mirror that we get with Batman. It's not this two people set upon opposite paths. Like race sees him as perhaps someone I can mold. Someone who is more susceptible to my charms than Batman and he gets to that point at least in this story where there's almost kind of a a grudging admiration like I don't think this is going to work out for you but you know what I'll help um and that that's to me was an interesting version of Raish, which we get very much extremes in the stories we read he's either just this ranting raving lunatic or there is this nice nuance
0: with him and i think we get that here said something about the ending and this could have become really ugly and exploitative very easily but o'neill finds a way to thread the needle to the point where yeah it's kind of uncomfortable But it's clear that he's trying to make you uncomfortable. It's not that uncomfortable of, isn't this awesome? And you're like, no, this is awful in retrospect. But no, here it's like, yeah. The experiments that the Order is doing to create Azrael are awful. And the fact that they, spoilers for a... 30-year-old comic, are basically removing the Azrael from the mother's womb, just disposing of the mother because, to quote the Grey Abbot, they're just a female, and then raising the child on nutrients from genetically engineered like Sasquatchy beast things because it gives them strength and then torturing the fetus through birth to instill rage. And because angels in Dumas philosophy are not anything greater than humanity, as a matter of fact, they are servants of man. So they are baser things than man. That's a lot of dark and a lot of weird philosophy, but it works because O'Neill isn't treating it at any point with edgelord, like joy goggles. No, it's terrible. And he makes it very clear. It's terrible based on, especially Jean-Paul's reaction to learning that his mother has been dead since before he was born. And he has been tortured for his entire life
2: there's this um common christian not necessarily folktale not real canon but like idea of the fall of satan and it goes like this um god created the hierarchy of things right you have god who is perfect and eternal and simple and then you have the realm of intelligences which are angels who are not eternal but they are immaterial you know they're they're, they're not changing in the the way that animals are. And then you have material beings down here as the animals who are not immortal, not eternal, and don't have any kind of will. And then God reveals his plan to the angels, which is there's going to be this weird hybrid thing that is both material and spiritual, that has both a body that changes and decays and some kind of intellectual capacity that transcends that. And not only that, but one day there's going to come one human being that he's going to ask the angels to bow down to, that is going to be superior to the angels. And in fact, by virtue of that being who is Jesus, uh, all human beings will be able to participate in a way in communion with God in a way that the angels cannot. And the hierarchy in general submits to the plan, but then Satan is the one who, in one variation, out of pride, says, no, I will not bow down to something that is part animal. And in other variations, out of a kind of short-sighted love, says, I would never bow down to it. something that isn't you, God. And so, in this weird comic booky way again, Danny O'Neill is playing with some really old ideas and just making them wacky and strange and troubling and easy. It's like the EC horror version of a medieval story about the fall of Satan, which I love. It's actually troubling in a way that Sean Gordon Murphy never gets to. There, a baby is tortured and is killed because of this absurd philosophy of the hierarchy of beings it is wild it is wild and i love that ending no matter how like horrifying it is
0: and it breaks jean paul in a way that not even his defeat at the hands of batman breaks him it's not like the next issue it's like hey guess what he's better no it's a few issues of him in a real bad place which makes sense because it's not something that you forget exactly right away. And it does pay off the warning, right? They
1: say that the Azrael should never go to the source because,
0: well, they learned some bad stuff. And another one of those disquieting moments is they're, they're telling the story and Brian Brian is like, oh, so I guess he was useless to the order after that. And he's like, no, he was actually the most efficient Azrael we've ever had after that.
2: Perfect moment. Perfect panel.
0: Denny O'Neill at his best. There's a reason why the man was a legend. He knew how to tell a story. He knew how to deliver it. And he knew what artists to work with because we're talking about all the cerebral stuff. There is some really good action in this. The duel between Azrael, Jean-Paul and the sort of faux Azrael is really cool. And that guy is great because in the end, you know, Azrael john Paul has defeated him. And John Paul's reaching out and he's the guy's like, wait, no, you have to pull me up because if you don't, we'll never know which one of us is better. And John Paul's like, I don't care which one of us is better, but I'm gonna save you because it's the right thing to do. And granted, me by that point, and Azrael is uh is a fun take.
2: And I I love the tragedy there where he dies specifically because when he is not in combat, his strength leaves him. And like, he wants to save this guy out of the goodness of his heart. And because he has a good heart, he can't save the guy. That is a really good character beat.
0: I am so often worried when I reread comics that I really loved when I read them as a teenager that, oh God, this is going to turn out to be bad and I'm going to be just so heartbroken and this is when I was like I remember this was like my book of the month when it was coming out like this was one of my favorite comics month in and month out for quite a while and so I was like especially dreading it oh god please don't suck please don't suck please don't suck I was like wow no this doesn't suck as a matter of fact I'm picking up stuff that I didn't pick up when I was younger hooray I had good taste at least somewhat as a teenager I think I'm good Anybody else got anything before we go?
1: Uh, that silence means it's time for Fallen Angel
0: on the big board. Where we got
1: Batman sort of Azrael?
0: Batman sort of Azrael is 137. So we're in the top half. We're, we're right around the halfway point. I think it's better. Yes, there's much more nuance john paul is not the oh wow i'm blanking on the character's name and uh no no, i'm trying to come up with a, a a parallel in that first book he is i'm remembering the the less obscure one and forgetting he's arthur dent from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or richard mayhew from neverwhere He's this guy who's sort of thrust into this situation. And yes, he has more agency than either of those two characters because of the system. But he is the lost in this world character.
2: He's Ryan Reynolds
0: and Free Guy. That is sort of the, the thing here. Here, he has a purpose. He has something he is questing for. And I think that makes him a much more engaging character here than he is in sort of Azrael. Right, Give me so a ceiling, brah. Okay. Okay, Well, I'm going to move up. I have at least a, a, an updated floor. This is better than Hush. Oh, yeah. I enjoy this more than I enjoy Hush at 78. What's not better than Hush aside from <laughs> the other 200 books? The Hush, the thing with Hush is Hush has some absolutely stunning art. It does some good stuff with Batman and Catwoman. As a bunch of sort of random fundal stories, it's good. It's when you try to actually take Hush, the character, and make him interesting, is where you run into trouble.
1: All right. Hush. So we, we got to put a ceiling on it. I'm going to say. Slay Riot at
0: 37. Yeah, I can go with that. All right, well, here's one, Rob, because you're here. A 49 is a Savage Innocence. That Spectre issue with the Joker.
2: That is one of my favorite issues of my favorite comic series versus this, which is just a really stunning and lovely and excellent comic series. I would go with uh, the Spectre also because in this comic, it is still the world of Batman, But Batman is a lot, is even more secondary and Gotham is even more distant in this one than in
0: the Spectre issue. I agree with that. So that gives us a ceiling of 49. So we're somewhere in between 49 and I said Hush was 78. So that's a much more, a much tighter range. I'd move the floor up to Venom at 66. I think this is better than Venom. I was literally about to bring in Venom because that's another Denny O'Neill. Yeah, this does not have that weird soft middle mm-hmm. that Venom does. While this takes its time getting to where it does, every step of the way has a purpose to It
1: has some interesting similar themes in that Innocence uh, being exploited and crushed up and used for evil purposes.
0: All right. Hmm. 57. The Vengeance of Bane. The first appearance of Bane. That is the story of a child being built up and turned into a monster by a system that he has no power to affect. It's not as literal as here but it is a similar thing and it's why Bane and Azrael when looked at from a certain angle have a lot of similarities and it's something we'll see in the next story with another character in Azrael who is very similar in many ways above that is for the man who has everything which Is undoubtedly a brilliant comic, but is also another one of these ones where Batman is a secondary or even tertiary figure. What do you think about in between those two? In between, for the man who has everything and the vengeance of Bane, that works for me. The new New number fifty-seven. New number fifty-seven. Our final story of the night is sort of Azrael. This is sort of Azrael number one to six. The writer is Dan Waters with art by Nicolas Sezmizija. Colors by Marissa Louise, letters by Hassan Osman Oahu, and edited by Ariana Taturo, David Wilgus, and Ben Abernathy. The cover dates are October of 2022 to March of 2023. Fleeing Gotham, Jean-Paul Valley has found peace in a small Mediterranean abbey, but a young woman sent from Gotham will bring with her violence, and the final secret of the system and the Order of St. Dumas. So this is the, the story that sort of, that Rob really wanted to come on here and, and talk about, because there are some things here that spoke to you. Folks,
2: uh, this story, let me just get real close up to the mic here. This story owns. It It, it rules. This is, I think, God, I wish this went 100 issues. This Shows the value of the character and the way you can expand out the Bat family to tackle all kinds of fascinating stories, all kinds of genres, all kinds of themes in a way that diverges from the original but still maintains some kind of core connection to, like, the idea of Batman. It's a story that goes back to the heart of Azrael, where he is a guy who was in a cult and got messed up by it. And is trying to not discard every single aspect of how he previously thought of himself, but is trying to separate what is really himself versus what they put there. And what he learns as he progresses is that he was wrong about the distinctions and the stuff that changed him, like the trauma that he has from being in this horrible, messed up situation, is still part of him. And it's doing himself a disservice to try to put up these artificial barriers. And instead he has to accept like the fullness of who he is now, that he has to move forward with what's been done to him instead of just trying to ignore or completely sublimate that um, part of himself. And it is beautiful. It speaks to me personally as someone who had some experiences growing up in and adjacent to a cult and uh, was trying to maintain some kind of religious sensibility or spiritual sensibility afterwards. Um, But then, as a comics reader, it also speaks to me because so much of this comic is deeply smart and thoughtful and well-researched and complex, and so much of it is the dumb comics bullshit that I love. So much like a large part of the story are two guys who are connected in some way that are rivals that beat each other up and then become best friends. And that is the, my favorite dumb comic story. While at the same time, it is this nuanced and thoughtful reflection on how religion and trauma and all these things define you and how you can still define yourself
1: after them. I love it. I love it. I would like to point out that Rob did that whole monologue and he did not mention the biblically accurate angel. Oh,
2: man. Multiple kinds, cherubim and seraphim. And then at the end, symbolizing his acceptance of himself and the broken person that he is and becoming stronger as a result, that panel where Jean-Paul Vallet becomes transformed and is himself a biblically accurate angel for a moment. Oh, perfection. Perfection.
0: And because I am the deep DC nerd that I am, the fact that they find a way to tie in Jack Kirby's fourth world in a really neat, subtle isn't the right word, because it's not subtle, it's right there, but it's it's not like, oh, and now here's Darkseid. But it's like, oh, all of this tech traces back to Orion and Kalibak having a fight, orion dropping his mother box as they're boom tubed away and then being like "Ooh, angel thing and it's hinted at even before you see the mother box in issue one or two when jean paul is first sinking into the system the graphics on that page which are surreal have that kirby circuitry already working into them and you see more and more of it as it goes And it's like that's the kind of use of the deep lore of a shared comic book universe that I want to see. It doesn't have to slam you over the head. It doesn't have to be sat there and explained to you. If you don't know the fourth world, it'll be a little weird. But did that really affect your appreciation of the story? No, not at all. I I think learning about that now is as cool as hell. That was what that was. That's that's new God stuff that was just put in there as a little bit of a way to tie in to the wider DC universe and into one of Azrael's less great stories. He was part of a, a Justice League space series that had some new God stuff that was not too great. But the fact that it was a whole thing with him dealing with the new gods, was like, I'd completely forgotten about that. The first time I read this and I'm reading again, I was like, Oh, yeah, there was Justice League Odyssey. And no one mentioned it again.
2: But- I love it on so many levels. I love it because it is the kind of comic that uses lore to enrich rather than obfuscate. Um, it, it sets up new things for the future where you can tell intelligent stories with the new gods in Azrael now. It expands your options thematically. It's wonderful to have um, the detritus of the gods be the thing that makes people think they're the chosen ones of God. hypertextually it is interesting to have this little mini stalker or roadside picnic scenario pop up in the middle of the DC universe every level it enriches and also if you don't know it doesn't matter it doesn't you can just move forward and it's fine it's great wonderful comics
0: it's so cool that also the synergy you get with creators Rom V is another member of this the studio that Dan Waters, who writes this book, is a part of. Father Valley is a character from Rom V's run on Catwoman. And oh. yet yeah, there's an annual that explains his relationship to Ludovic Valley. But that character was introduced by Rom V in his run on Catwoman as an assassin hired to kill Selena. And so you get this whole thing in there, and it's it's sort of hinted at. And then this Catwoman well, Annual gives the whole background. But because they're buds, they brought that character in. And I would be dreading the next appearance of Azrael if it wasn't going to be in Rom V's Detective. Because he appears in one panel in the most recent issue of Detective. Mm. So he'll be coming... Once the book comes back after Night Terrors, I have to imagine. And since Waters is writing the backups, there's got to be some major synergy there.
2: That's tremendously exciting. I'm looking forward to that. And um, reminding myself that I need to read Rom V's DC comics since Rom v is incredible. Yes. Um, but also just what a wonderful character that Father Valley is. Just this Helsing anime uh, priest with a whip and glasses that are always glaring from the light. Love it. Love it.
0: And when he popped up here, I was like, well, that makes so much sense because they set him up in the Catwoman. as He gives his origin exactly as it is that Ludovic had him, trained him hoping to take Jean-Paul's place and he knew afterwards he never would. So he would never be Jean-Paul's equal. And so here, as you said, we got, they fight. And then they become, you know, brother, and it's, it's right there. And Vengeance, Vengeance is a character who had a very specific purpose in the Tiny and Joker series. And again, this is a character who could have gone in many, many terrible places. So many characters who are created to serve a specific purpose in a specific story don't go anywhere good because writers don't know what to do with them after that. But here, bringing her in as someone who was grown to serve this specific purpose and then turned on her creators puts her in parallel to Jean-Paul, placing her in the orbit of the Knights Templar. And It's funny, as you haven't heard the episode, Rob, but our previous episode that we recorded that hasn't dropped yet, Batman the Scottish Connection, features Roslyn Chapel and all this Templar stuff. Huh and some stuff with the system tying in there. I didn't even realize it because we'd booked that episode ages ago. And when I'm reading, I'm like, oh, right, this has all that stuff. This is convenient to do that this week, right before we take a deep dive into the Order of St. Dumas next episode. But here we see Vengeance as this lost version of Jean-Paul. We have two parallel anti-Jean-Paul's with her and with Brielle, the woman who is the angel Sariel. We see how they react and bounce off of Jean-Paul's realization. And the last two pages of this book are just wonderful. Vengeance, Who'd Been Promised the Miracle and is enraged that Jean-Paul used Sariel to destroy the mother box and not awaken all the angels and father Valley being like, what do you mean? Look, nowhere has Azrael ever let a foe strike him. And then he has never shown them compassion. Nowhere in history. Have you seen an angel change its will and her, drop to her knees and asked if she can also receive absolution, and that Azrael is no more the angel of vengeance, he is the angel of mercy. I want more of all these characters, but if Jean-Paul never appeared again after that final splash of him wounded, with Father Valley under one arm and vengeance under the other, with just the angel of mercy, it would be the perfect resolution for everything Jean-Paul has struggled with since he was introduced in Batman sort of Azrael in 1993.
2: It's it's one of those weird comics where it's six issues like every series is these days. And so it could have felt overstuff or rushed, but because it engages so thoughtfully with the character as a whole, it really doesn't feel like a rushed six issues. It feels like a perfect final arc a perfect first arc, while still being satisfying on its own. So much of what you talked about there is also, and because we're running very long and I don't want to waste your time with more theology bullshit, so much of what you said there also is also clearly revealing that Dan Waters has thought very carefully about this stuff and is, I think, probably at least passingly familiar with some uh, angelology stuff. Uh, Because, you know, angels, as compared to humans, as I kind of alluded to before, are defined in part by wills that can't change. Right, you have the fall of Satan. You can't have a Satan who's going back and forth. You have Michael who chose to be with God. They're defined by a choice. They don't exist in time. They don't have that arrow of time that we do that allows us to grow and fall and come back again. In the classical, at least uh, Aristotelian sort of system, I can't tell you what Protestants think about angels. Wouldn't really know. Um, the babies on the greeting cards work different, I'm sure. But in like the most traditional sense of at least christian thought on angels it is that difference between the unchangeability of making a single choice and being defined by it versus being able to change throughout your
0: whole life as waters wrote four volumes of lucifer yeah, yeah <laughs> he, he spent some time mulling over some of that stuff
2: um it- he did make one mistake in, in the the panel with the cell phone conversation he does uh have Uh, Jean-Paul Valley say, brother, I know that a monk can't hear confessions. Only a priest can. Monks can be priests. Monk is a kind of religious person. Just uh, instead of working in in a diocese, a specific like town or region governed by a bishop, instead working in a specific alternate hierarchy with an order dedicated to a certain goal, like a teaching order or an order that takes care of the poor or an order that brainwashes assassins, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, monks can hear confessions sometimes, if they're priests. Not all monks are priests. Square rectangle situation. Very minor mistake. Easy to forgive.
0: And and we haven't even talked about Jean-Paul fighting Satan.
1: Oh!
0: (laughs) Which is, we have an issue and a half of Jean-Paul fighting this prototype Azrael that is, in fact, Satan. Humunculus Satan. Yeah. Humunculus Frankenstein Satan, who's been patching himself up with people who get lost in the mountains for 400 years. No, longer than 600 years.
2: And the the fight concludes with an ironic inversion to that previous story we read, where like Jean-Paul Valley loses someone because Asriel leaves him when he's not fighting. And in this one, Asriel forces him to take a life so that he feels what it means to actually kill someone. And Jean-Paul Valley finally understands that weight. And then that transgression is also what allows him ultimately to reconcile with this other side of himself. Oh, it's a it's a fight with a large guy named Satan. It's Dumb comics bullshit and also
0: thematically genius. I love it. It's somewhere in his fight with Father Valley. It would have been so easy to just be like. And there's this mother box and that's how this is has all been happening with the system. But he actually, Father Valley mentions the Grey Abbot, the guy who was at the end of those seven issues, the one who was creating the Azraels. So that is still canon. It is not something that has been forgotten, which you can easily do because there have been like three universal reboots in between Azrael 1 to 7 and now. But no, it is part of the mythos and the flashback because we we find that the system is basically imprinted all of the past azraels memories deep buried within jean paul when you see exactly who saint dumas was the earlier versions of this guy was obsessed this guy was a little crazy maybe no he was a heretic He was a blasphemer. He didn't believe any of this. He was in it for the money and the power. And he founded this order of fanatics who truly believe in him and believe in all of this stuff that he doesn't care about in the least. And that, looking at American culture in the past, let's say eight years, I have often sat and wondered Who is the worst person, the true believer in some of these horrible ideologies or the ones who don't actually believe any of it, but are more than willing to truck in this because it just gives them influence and power and an ego boost? And I I don't have an answer for that. I still struggle with that. Fairly often. But here you look at it and it's like, yeah, in this more morally black and white world of superheroics, yeah, I have to imagine, I think that Dumas is worse than the poor fellow or Sariel, who really believe this stuff, because Dumas is just sitting there more or less cackling, like, I don't care, but I'm going to come out of this one ahead.
2: The cult that I was a part of was founded by that kind of guy. Later, it was discovered pretty explicitly that he founded the order to cater to his own desires and plagiarized all of his writings that had been held as so spiritual and so deep. And yet I also knew through that order, terrible, horrible people who were real true believers, who did intense damage to the local communities, to society, to individuals. And so that's something that I've grappled with. Uh, a lot myself. And I don't think superhero comics with fight scenes involving large muscly men punching each other that are largely read by children or designed to be, I don't think they have to grapple with that kind of extreme moral weight. I don't think necessarily often that they should. However, in the rare circumstances where they do so thoughtfully and carefully, and they provide something of value, I think it's wonderful. I love that there can be this thing that can resonate with someone's personal experience on something that that is horrifying, um, for me was horrifying, and yet still be its own good superhero
1: comic.
0: Well, unless you have anything else, I think that is the note to end this particular story on. Absolutely, I believe that means it's time, but Sword Azrael on the big board! This is tricky only in that Batman himself appears in two panels. Batman is in in there like flashback panels. It's Jean-Paul seeing Bruce Wayne in the wheelchair and Jean-Paul as Batman in one panel. So it's like, okay, can we rank something in the top 50 that has so little Batman? For the Man Who Has Everything is one of the great superhero comics of all time. But it falls at 56 because Batman is incidental and it is a Superman story. This is an Azrael story. However, in devil's advocate to my own point there, Azrael is a Batman character. Superman is not a Batman character. Superman is a Superman character. And Jean Paul has worn the bat, the mantle. Jean Paul has been Batman at one point or another, so that does give it something of a boost. Will do you have a ceiling for this? You know what, the biblically accurate angel—that
1: that's a boost. I would be comfortable putting this putting this in the top fifty. I don't think it beats Haikatia at twenty nine, so it doesn't get very deep into the top 50 but i think it can crack it
0: let's circle to one from rob's previous appearance golem of gotham that's at 42 so where where do we feel that is more intrinsically a batman story although again batman is not the prime mover of that story batman is a story engine in there to tell the story of this rabbi, and I will, I will say, many of the great Batman stories, especially on Batman the animated series, are stories like that. I don't think it
1: could go above Golem of Gotham. If you're asking me, I don't know if we're asking Rob, but if you're asking me, the art is so spectacular. But just that emotional resonance is so strong in Golem of Gotham at
0: 42. I'm leaning towards that also because Golem of Gotham, and and this is, is something that I remain saddened by, is something we couldn't get now. Yeah, you can't make a stand like that. And God help us that we can't make a stand that skinheads are bad in 2023. But... There's something about that that just, I think this is then somewhere in between. Okay, so both of the uh, the stories from your previous episode, two of the three then, are right there. Because you got Golem of Gotham at 42 and Savage Innocence at 49. Which is again there because that is not a Batman story. That's a Spectre story that has some Batman. But it's so good, it still cracks the top 50. But it, again, has more Batman than this does
2: in my advisory capacity purely non-binding i i like this a lot more than that individual specter issue however that is a specter issue like about the joker who is at least more fundamentally batman than azrael you know and and so on a pure like as a comic i like this more however on a batman list i can see it going below
1: the eternal struggle
0: yeah we're right in the right area there This is right around that space. Because that's 49. 50 is the Brubaker, Monkey, first Joker story. And 51 is Rooftops, the Tom King, Batman, Catwoman, two-parter that is the best Batman, Catwoman that Tom King wrote. This is definitely above 52, the first part of Eternal. As good as Eternal is, as good as that first part of Eternal is, this is such amazing character work.
1: It's more ambitious than Rooftops. I'll put it above that.
0: Yes. As much as I love Man Who Laughs, and you know how much I love some good Ed Brubaker, that is not terribly ambitious. That is taking an established story, building it out, it's doing, adding some interesting twists to that original eight page story building it out to a 48 page story that still works lord knows we've seen enough expansions of short stories the longer ones that don't that one still works it doesn't add anything new to the mythos this does something fundamental so i think this is the new number 50 perfect
2: big is this the biggest gulf that we've had that you've had on the podcast so far Quite
0: probably, <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'd have to quickly go down and look at where the other bottom stories, what other episodes they were in. Oh, hey, I.
1: I, I sorry to interrupt, but we might have a bigger gulf. Uh, episode six is Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves <laughs> and Red Rain.
0: <laughs> ah, yes. that oh, is, man. That is the big one. And yeah, because I was going to say, there's also the surrogate down at 83. That is from episode 83. That's 287. And uh there is no hope in Crime Alley, the first oh. Leslie Tompkins story, which is all the way up at 44. That's all. But yeah, no, nothing is a bigger gap than... Was it number five or number six? And then Superman and Batman versus vampires and werewolves. Yeah, number six. And then uh, fourth from the bottom. That is the the, biggest the, gap. the <laughs> long
2: time worst of the list, if I remember. Until
0: <laughs> yeah, until Murphy. Yeah that that was on there for 20, 22 episodes, and then that one is hung on until now.
2: Well, if any Sean Gordon, Gordon Murphy fans are listening, I get it. You like a comic that mentions something in the real world and you want to think, I get it. You like a comic that has new, interesting designs at times and that feels like it does something important, like has big, impactful moments. I get it. I want you, if you're listening to this, to read the other two stories we read tonight. Not to say that that'll displace necessarily your love for Curse of the White Knight in your heart. Maybe, maybe it'll add something to your life to read these other good comics um, that do those things in a way that i personally think are much better than uh the murphy
0: verse accomplishes well rob thank you for coming on the show again where can people find you online if you want to be found and nowadays the way social media is maybe you don't and i'd understand well, um, you can find
2: most of my writing on XF. I haven't written something in a long time. I'm working on something weird that I hope will go up, ideally, if I finish it and it gets published before this episode goes live. Ooh. Uh, but what, what I'm going to do is sign off by recommending that uh, you read Hilda Doolittle's collected poems, specifically her Angel Trilogy, which... Does contain references to Azrael and other angels. It is a trilogy of poems she wrote during World War II, when the bombs were falling, and she saw all these broken ceilings around her in London in the Blitz. And she had this kind of like ecstatic spiritual experience. She was a weird lady. Um, had a very odd kind of spirituality that pulled from all kinds of traditions. But it's this trilogy of poems that largely are about angels and thinking about them. And I think they're beautiful. Um, She was this bisexual, polyamorous, 1940s poet that is better than many of her contemporaries, but was not widely read in part because of the things that I just mentioned. And I think she's worth another look today. So pick up an Azrael comic where a guy fights a giant Satan, and then go to your bookstore and say, give me some imagist poetry, please. That's (laughs) my recommendation to everyone listening.
0: Thank you once again, Rob. And that does it for tonight on this bonus-sized Bat Chat. Next week, we promise a normal-length episode where we read Batman Year 2, finishing the unofficial Early Years trilogy, and two of the stories that influenced it. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grode, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> asimov fangirl tony thornley
1: go Ute's,
0: sam hopper john wickham robert secundus bobby
1: two bucks thanks oh, that's, for that's coming me. on
0: tim rooney giorgio sregioli david wheel and alexander wheel for their support you can follow this podcast on twitter at bat Chat comics and the show is available on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify amazon music slash audible and the comics xf where new episodes drop every thursday you can support the podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash chat with matt and will where you can get shout outs bonus content pick a story and even come on the show if you want to hear more of my ramblings mostly about the three c's comics cinema and cats you can follow me on twitter at matt 1013 and i'm at will nevin i'm also out of here good night huntsville And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other story, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.